Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 10, please. Looking at verse 16 through 42, going to tackle a little bit bigger piece of scripture. So I just want to welcome you guys that are here, welcome you that are watching online. Um, glad to be with you on this snowy morning. <clears throat> Matthew's gospel, the 10th chapter is where we find ourselves, um, and we're looking at verses 16 through 42. Matthew is an eyewitness testimony of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Last time we saw, he called 12 disciples to himself, and he sent them out on their first evangelistic mission. Now, this time the message continues to them. He's in that same setting. He's called the 12. He's giving them. He's sending them out. He's preparing them. This message is in that same setting. It's, he's still talking to them. But this time what he's going to do is he's going to prepare them for persecution. That's the title of the message today, preparing for persecution. You know, it's interesting. I was watching a video, maybe some of you got it the other day, about just the persecution. Granted, it's nothing like other countries, but that's going on in California right now with uh, Calvary Chapel in San Jose, like literally OSHA and government officials. And, and I don't know the intricacies of it, but I, what I do know is the pastor of that church and his wife and the people involved with that ministry there, they're strongly convicted that they should be keeping their church open uh, because they believe God commands us to do that. It says, do not neglect getting together. Um, and it's a command. And I understand what it's like as a pastor to feel like, you know, I'm under this charge of the Lord to do what I'm doing, and now I've got the government telling me to do something else. And they're, they're literally, the pastor of Calvary Chapel, San Jose, has literally over, over a million dollars of fines on him. Uh, there's hundreds of thousands of dollars of fines towards the church just because they want to stay open. And, um, you know, a lot of people are getting infuriated. Some people are saying, this is a demonic attack against the church. This is that. And, you know, and I don't, I'm not going to go down paths like that. I'm not into, you know, let's just look at the facts, call it what it is. Uh, something's going on. It's a difficulty. And it would seem that way. It would appear that way, that, that it's just persecution, you know. Um, persecution's a reality in this country. Um, in North America, though, in general, there have been countless churches burned down in Canada now, I want you to think about that as you're sitting here today. You're thinking about the next time you try to come to Calvary Chapel, you know, in the morning to see your friends, that it's nothing but burnt embers and smoke. I want you to think about that. What would happen if you showed up here and, you know, you grab the door handle and it just falls off, you know, because it's just, you know, I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine what it would be like to, you know, to see, you know, pastor and his wife are in jail you know, because they want to preach the word of God, because Adam wants to preach, he's in jail. This stuff is happening. Bakers lose their business because they don't want to go against their conscience. It's like, I, I started my own business. I want to follow my own conscience. I don't want to make a cake for these people. They can do what they want. I just don't, I want to follow my own conscience. But getting arrested, get, you know, getting your business shut down because you can't, because you want to follow your own conscience. Um, students, student groups being forced to move off of campuses. Uh, you know, what seems like this religious persecution happening, censorship on social media. You know, you post Bible stuff in, in certain contexts and they demonetize you on uh, YouTube and, you know, and, they, and Facebook, you know, bans people, you know. And um, what seems like, you know, I mean, the God-given liberty that we have in this country is under attack, you know. So persecution is like a reality. It's really happening. And so when I was preparing this message, I started thinking about this, and I was like, wow, that's what we need to do. 
We need to prepare for persecution. You know? Now, a lot of us, there's a few ways that people are dealing with what's going on. There's probably more than what I thought of here. Many people are today, they're fighting with man's weapons, right? They're saying, we need to fight. We need to take, we need to take this to the courts. We need to do this other stuff. They're fighting with man's weapons, okay? I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. They're putting their hope in the system. They're putting their hope in politics, politicians. The church has gotten in bed with politicians more in this last year than I've ever seen in my life. I think when I was younger, probably the Reagan administration, you know, the religious right was, you know, I was kind of too young to remember, really. I wasn't paying attention. I was playing Nintendo. (laughs) Many people today are, here's another response. Many people are turning to drugs and alcohol and suicide, you know. There's another group of people out there that are just seeing something prophetic in every single thing that happens, right? They are just certain that every single thing is a sign. The rapture is right around the corner, and they're, they're making something prophetic out of absolutely everything. By the way, that's happened numerous times in history, right? Then there are people today that are just simply living in denial, just hoping that life's going to kind of go back to normal, or they're even just choosing just to kind of go with the narrative that's out there, just hoping that, like, you know, it'll be okay. Everybody's, if we just do what they tell us, everything's going to be all right. I'm not advocating for one of those responses. I'm just saying that's kind of typically what we're seeing. That's what I'm noticing with people, right? But how should we deal with this stuff? Is there, does the Bible have to say anything about how we should deal with persecution, how we should deal with pressure uh, from, you know, the unbelieving world to these different things. Does the Bible have anything to say? And that's where we're going today in these few minutes. Since God has warned believers of persecution to come, it just makes sense to kind of stop being naive and and sort of wake up and be prepared. And so that's what I think that we're going to see in the message here today. You will be prepared for persecution coming from this message. If you understand, number one, on our outline, some principles for dealing with persecution. And then number two of our outline is having the priorities of a genuine disciple. Having the priorities of a genuine disciple. So we want to understand some principles of how we should deal with persecution. And we also want to make sure, especially in these times, all the time, that we have the priorities of a genuine disciple. And so that's where we're headed this time. Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now, brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father, his child, and his children, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. 
It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Heavenly Father, we turn to you, the God of the word. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us beyond the words of a man, that your spirit would speak to us. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you've helped us, that you've helped us to see the truth, that you've helped us to see you, that you've brought healing and peace into our lives, Lord. You've done for us what we can do for ourselves, Lord. And I pray, Father, that we would be built up and encouraged as we study this very sobering message from our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Persecution must be met with the proper demeanor. Look at verse 16. He goes, I sent you out in the, as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, sheep are you know, defenseless. They're harmless. This is a word for believers. You're harmless and defenseless. This is Jesus. He's saying, this is how I send you out into a world where there's persecution. You're like sheep. I want you to go out like sheep. I want you to be harmless and defenseless because that's how I want my people to be. You don't live by the sword. People that take the sword die by the sword. Remember Jesus says that when Peter lops that guy's ear off, right? And so he says, I want to send you out as disciples, not to fight. I want to send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now the wolves, you remember back in the last chapter, he says that, you know, false prophets are like ravenous wolves. These are the persecutors. He says, I send you out in the midst of wolves. Now, literally, he's saying to his disciples, when you really truly follow me, when you're a true Christian, you're going to experience hatred and opposition from those that are pinned against Christ. Now, this is weird to us. We don't understand this in this country, right? Because we, 
uh, have never lived in, in that sort of environment at all. But let me tell you, it is an anomaly. It is not normal. What goes on in America is not normal considering the rest of the world and how Christians are treated everywhere else. It's not. We've been, America's only like 200 and some years old. You guys don't realize this. You go to school for history and you learn about the Roman Empire. You learn about the Persians, the Medes. You learn about, and you realize America's a blip on the timeline. This this bubble of peace and prosperity that we live in here is because it was founded by people that valued what the Bible says is important, right? And now everybody's working so hard to get rid of the Bible and what's coming on along with it are a bunch of problems, right? But you don't realize this because some of you are just born, you know, so we were born, you know, we don't get it. We were just, we've been born, we've been thrust into a world with technology put in front of our faces and what we're told is the most important thing is how we feel. We're told that our whole lives. Do I want this toy or do I want that toy when I'm a kid? That's, you're instantly faced with these decisions, these life-altering, changing decisions. Should I get Legos or should I get a remote control car, right? And that's what we're taught to think about in America. Should I eat Taco Bell tonight or maybe I should eat Pizza Hut? You know, and that's what we're flooded with our whole life. Should I get married or should I not? Should I go roller skate? Should I stay or should I go now? No. Doesn't that just prove that everybody in here has been fed something like a narrative, right? We've all been told what life is about. Well, Jesus says, look, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I like how Jesus doesn't candy coat things. I was thinking about the benefit of candy coating things. Like my dog, if I'm going to give him a bath, I can't tell him what lies ahead. You know what I mean? Buddy, it's bath time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, you'd be like, uh, you know, uh. <laughs> you got to tell him, look, there's a treat in there. You know, you could bribe him along a little bit. But I love how Jesus doesn't candy coat it. Jesus just says straight up, look, it's difficult to be a Christian. You know, if you're doing it right, if you're doing the true Christianity, you got to expect difficulty, you know. And so he goes on and he says, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I read a story about a 25 foot boa constrictor that lived in the basement of a home in Florida for like two years and nobody knew it was there except for they saw the skin because they molt or whatever and they found the skin around but they're like, there's obviously this massive serpent somewhere in the, but he's good at hiding himself and that's what I think Jesus is getting at. Be wise as serpents. Figure out how to hide yourself. Figure, use the mental agility. Be smart when it comes to avoiding, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing spiritual about, you know, being foolishly, you know, thrusting yourself into bad situations, right? So be wise as serpents, but be harmless as doves. Doves are not birds of prey. Doves are not, uh, there's no guile in them. They're always a symbol of innocence. I want you to be wise to the tactics of the enemy and learn how to hide yourself, but I want you to be harmless. I don't want you to get all jaded and burnt. I don't want you to be, you know, military commando or whatever, you know, when it comes to spiritual warfare. What I want you to do is I want you to, go out and be, I want you to maintain this demeanor of being guileless, of being innocent when it comes to evil, right? I don't want you to be experienced in knowing about evil, you know? People today are just enthralled with evil. They're like, oh, let me watch this YouTube channel about this person that does, they're enthralled with evil, you know? Uh, By and large, I don't want you to be like that. Jesus wants you to be, he wants you to be pure, you know? It's no wonder there's so much bad mental health today because of the stuff people are interested in. They, they're not innocent. They don't want to be like doves, you know? 
oh boy, I wish I would have learned, I wish I would have been like a dove growing up, <laughs> you know, and I wouldn't have all this stuff floating around in my brain still. Oh my goodness. Persecution must be met with the proper demeanor. Number two, persecution can lead to times of testimony. Uh, in verses 17 through 20, he, he said there, he's like, you'll be delivered up in front of councils, in front of kings. And he says, but don't worry about it because the Holy Spirit's going to give you the words during that time and it's going to be a testimony. You see in the book of Acts, this stuff happened. Paul was delivered up in front of kings. Um, but I want you to notice, he says in verse 17, he says, you're going to be scourged in the synagogues. What it means to be scourged. And I just find this interesting that Jesus, you know, warned them. He told them specifically what was going to happen. A scourge is a, is a whip on a handle and it has four thongs, leather thongs coming out of the end of it. And it has bone fragments on the end of it. And what they would do is you would go into the synagogue. When you broke the law of Moses, when you broke the Pharisees laws and, and the Jewish law, what would happen is the synagogue is where they would administer justice. So you'd be brought in there for your crime. You'd lay down in front of the rabbi. You'd lay down in the front of the place and you'd get whipped. Uh, generally, you know, 40 lashes was the you know, the limit for the law. So typically what they did was 40 lashes minus one. They did 39 just, just to be, you know, like in case the count got off and you got one too many or something. Literally, there are records of people dying from this, right? <laughs> I mean, can you think about that for a second? If you didn't obey the Ten Commandments, you know, like, I mean, if you, if you got caught in adultery, if you got caught disrespecting your parents, you got brought into the freaking synagogue and like whipped, I mean, until you're bleeding, you know? I mean, they took morality seriously in those days. It's kind of interesting. Cultures that take morality seriously have less crime. Pretty interesting, right? Uh, you know, countries where like drugs brings the death penalty, pretty interesting that you don't see as many drug problems. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. So persecution can lead to times of testimony where he says, don't worry, the Holy Spirit will give you the words. Uh, by the way, I want you to realize that if somebody asks you to speak your testimony somewhere, this is not a verse that will excuse sloppy preparation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, this is saying they didn't, they're not going to have time to prepare always. And in those situations, don't worry. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. People will get saved. It must, persecution must be met with the proper demeanor. It can lead to times of testimony. Number three, it can come into the closest relationships. Verse 21 says, Brother will deliver brother up to death. Father is child and children will raise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. Jesus describes the sort of persecution that starts happening within families, right within families. You've got one person in the family that wants to follow Christ, that's convicted that we need to follow the Bible. The other family members want to walk in darkness. There's a problem, right? Um, and that's what he's talking about there. Listen, see there where it says in verse 22, here's a key. He says, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Along with the privilege of carrying the name of Christ comes the hatred that comes from the people that don't like Christ, that hate Christ. And that could happen with your own family. You're trying to follow Jesus the best you can in your family, but you've got a family member that wants to persist in their darkness. Listen, they're going to take it out on you. You've got to figure out how to deal with it. You need to deal with it like in a godly way. First of all, you need to be like, look at these principles so far. This Bible passage should be speaking to you if this is happening in your family, right? He doesn't candy coat the realities of being his follower. And our relationship with Jesus Christ comes before the relationship with anybody else. Because he says, if it doesn't, he says, you're not worthy of me. He says, don't bother. Do something else. Persecution can come in the closest relationships. Number four, persecution should be avoided if possible. Look at that, verse 23. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. 
There's nothing necessarily godly about flinging yourself into persecution. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 12 says, A wise person sees danger and hides themselves from it, but fools go on and suffer it. Proverbs 27, 12. Wise person sees danger and hides himself from it, but fools go on and suffer it. Persecution should be avoided if possible. Verse, at the end of verse 23, for assuredly I say to you that you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I will tell you with full certainty that I don't know what that verse means. Commentators are all over the place. Does that, is it talking about the second coming? Is it talking about the destruction of Jerusalem? Is it talking about Pentecost? Because it would seem like Jesus is saying, you're still going to be ministering. If, it's, if it means the second coming, then it would be like, okay, while you're still ministering in Jerusalem, you 12, the Son of Man will come back. So some people automatically assume that where it says before the Son of Man comes, that that just automatically means the second coming. I don't think it means that because obviously that didn't happen. So I don't think that means that. Uh, others think that he's talking about the Jerusalem destruction in 70 AD under Titus, that he would come in judgment, that God's coming in judgment. Therefore, that's, you know, they think that's what it means. Another one is um, that he did come and establish the, the kingdom in, you know, at Pentecost. I don't think that's what it means either. I, I read another commentator say that. That happened before this. I, I don't know. Here's my best guess at it. I think I found the answer personally. I, I, it's, it's so simple. Look at, verse, look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. They're out preaching, and then Jesus follows them and goes to the same. I don't know. That's, that seems logical to me. But you're free to disagree with me on that one. I can't be dogmatic because no, I haven't run into two commentators that say the same thing. So, and no commentator said what I said. So I'll just leave that with you guys. We'll ask the Lord when we get to heaven. You know, I file a lot of those things away and say, we'll figure it out when we get there. Persecution should be avoided if possible. Number five, persecution happened to Jesus, so believers should expect it too. Look at that, verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher. Now, as a Christian here today, that's the goal of every one of us sitting in here. If you're in here today and you've got the proper goal for Christianity, if you're really doing it the right way, then the goal is that you're trying to become like Jesus. See, that's what he says right there. It's, it's good. It's, it's enough. Look at verse 25. It is enough for a disciple to be like his, that he be like his teacher. So that brings up an interesting question. You've been following Jesus for X amount of years or weeks or months. Are you becoming more like Jesus, right? Because that's the goal of discipleship. But what he's getting at there is Jesus is saying something very simply. He's saying, you're, you're a Christian and they persecuted me. Why do you think they wouldn't persecute you? Very simple. This, you know, I hate to harp on this and I'm reluctant to even do it, but, but I want to do it because there's so much health and wealth, prosperity, gospel, phony teaching in this town. Why in the world would people think that as a Christian, you're entitled to health, wealth, and prosperity if Jesus got ridicule, mocking, beating, and spitting, and death? And all the 12 apostles, every one of them but one was martyred for their faith. Why in, the, why in the world would we think any differently? Granted, we've been fed the American narrative ever since we've been born. We think life's about comfort, and that's understandable. Friends, there's nothing really you and I can do to kind of shake that. 
at this point. The only thing that's going to happen is when we hear stories about the churches getting burnt down in Canada, the first time you start hearing about them in Mason City, the first time you show up, and the first, you know, that's probably the only thing that's going to wake us up, right? I mean, I can't shake out the American framework in my head, but I'll tell you this. Jesus says it plainly, and this, this makes good logical sense. How as a Christian could you think that you could be entitled to some treatment different than what Jesus got, right? And that's his point there. Persecution happened to Jesus, so believers should expect it too. They call the master of the house Beelzebub. That's the, that was a, he's a Philistine uh, deity. Um, but in the time that Jesus was speaking, at the time this is happening, it was just a term referred to for like Satan. Like essentially what they're saying is Jesus is casting out demons because he's possessed by Satan, which doesn't make any sense. But it's interesting how people, you know, if they'll say stuff like that about Jesus, what will they say about you? It reminds me of the theologian today, the, I, I do that in quotes, the, the homosexual theologian Brandon Robertson that says that Jesus was sexist and racist, right? He's just buying into all this woke narrative that everybody's all hopped up on. It's making a bunch of money. It's, you know, they like that. So, so he hops in and he says Jesus was racist and sexist. I'll tell you what, what is happening right now is the narrative, this, this narrative that's being placed in young people's minds and everybody's mind everybody's kind of joining forces against Christianity. They really are. And I'm not saying that to be a weirdo. It's just literally the, the militant homosexual community. I'm not talking about the whole homosexual community. I'm just saying the militant end of it, the agenda is, is saying, look, the problem that we're having is Christianity. They're saying because the Bible condemns what we want to do with, with our bodies. And so therefore the enemy is Christian. All these people are coming together and, and they're saying things, they're blaspheming Jesus, just like what happened then. And so what Jesus is saying is, wake up already. You know, you get all up in arms when people are, are saying things about you as a Christian. Why are you even surprised if you've read your Bible, you know? <clears throat> now, number six, persecution is no reason to stop preaching. Look at verse 26. Therefore, do not fear them. In other words, don't be a coward. Trouble is coming, but Jesus will triumph. As sure as he came the first time, as sure as all those prophecies came true the first time, the ones that have already been fulfilled, all of them that have not been fulfilled are going to come true. And if you've read the end of the story, you understand that Jesus will triumph, right? Now, you can take the, the way, you know, and go with this narrative because you're experiencing pressure of people around you and peer pressure and all this stuff, and you can go and go that way. But I'm telling you, that way is not going to last, right? Jesus is going to triumph. And so he says, therefore, verse 26, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. In other words, the things the persecutors are doing, the way that they're persecuting the church, all the stuff that they're doing is going to come into judgment, right? That's everything that the unbeliever is doing in their life is going to come to judgment. So he says, don't fear him. It'll be dealt with. And look what he says there. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. Whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Now, in the Palestine in this area in this day, housetops had a flat 
roof, like a patio area. So it was a great place. In fact, it, it's, it was pretty common to go up and, you know, if you had an announcement to make, you'd get on your roof and you would do it. And so what Jesus is saying is even though things are heating up, why don't you preach in the most public, conspicuous way that you possibly can? You know, why don't you get on every social media thing that you can possibly get on and just start sharing the gospel everywhere? Why don't you take advantage of every single opportunity that you have and stop being a coward, stop worrying about what man thinks about you, and this is no time for cowardly Christians. It's not. Why don't you take advantage of every single thing that you've got and go preach rather than fearing man? That's what he says. Right there. Persecution is no reason to stop preaching. Number seven, persecution's fear is eclipsed by the fear of God. Persecution's fear is eclipsed by the fear of God. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. In other words, don't be so concerned about peer pressure and the fear of man you should be more worried about the fear of the Lord. You should be more worried about what the Lord will do for rejecting him, right? All a persecutor can do is kill your body. But God is beyond that. God has the power to take somebody's soul, was what it's saying here, and, and you know, let them go to hell, to cast them to hell. So you're better off pleasing God than you are trying to please man, right? And there are people today that are so afraid about what their friends think of them. I'm telling you what, the fear of, the man, fear of man is a snare, is what the Proverbs say. It's like a trap. You get your foot trapped in it, you can't get out of it. You become a people pleaser, you're worried about your reputation, you're worried about what everybody thinks about you, whether they think you dress the right way, whether you affirm the right things. You're caught up in the fear of man. Right? You're worried about what people are going to say about you because you're a Christian. I'll tell you what, it's better to please God than it is to please man. And that's, he's making a warning here. Jesus is making a very strong warning. But then he comforts. He gives comfort and he says, um, uh, you know, don't fear the displeasure of man, but fear displeasing God, right? But then the comfort comes and he says, they're not two sparrows sold for a copper coin. In other words, these cheap birds, they're so cheap, they're sold by the pair but God's even interested in just one of them. And then he goes on to say, every hair on your head is numbered. Now, I know, here come the hair jokes, right? Yeah, not a big job for God to do that with you. All right. Well, for those of you that have some hair, just grab it real quick, All right? Every one of those things that you just put in your hand, like God is intimately aware of and concerned with every single one of those things. As you hold your hair, I, I know you girls, you play with your hair so many times a day. But next time you do that, men do it too, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Coffee or tea? Uh. I'm telling you, man, every one of those hairs on your head, you should meditate on that and you should think about how interested God is in you. He's intimately concerned with you. He has a number. I don't know. Does he have like a log book? He's got like all these books. He doesn't, he just all is in his mind. He just knows everything at once. Like when you just grabbed your hair back there, it's like God would say, oh yeah, that's number 9,782. <laughs> what? You know, like he's got, he's that interested. That blows my mind. 
That's comforting, though. He says there, look at verse 31. Some of you really need this. You really need this today. Some of you really need verse 31. Don't you know that you are of more value than many sparrows? Man, God values you. He's not like this distant, mad judge that's all. He is a judge, but that's not all he is. He's also an intimate father that is like, he's concerned with you. You're of value to him. Listen, if you're dealing with the fear of man, the greatest cure for the fear of man is the fear of God. Look what he says about those birds. He says, not even one of them dies without God taking notice. But I want to go even further. Look at it where it says, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. For you theology nerds, the, 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 the sovereignty of God. It doesn't say God allows them to die. I realize this might be over, maybe, you know, theology nerd time. It, it doesn't say God allows one of these birds to die. It says it's a matter of his will. Now, that should blow your mind. You start to think about that. Nothing happens that God's not like completely aware of and is his will. So you think about that. You think about the problems you're dealing with in your life. You think about the fear of peer pressure, the fear of, you know, whatever it might be. Um, you're trying to stand on Christ, but you're worried about how people are going to act to you. It's within your own family. It's with at your job. It's wherever the place. God would say to you, look, it, even when the smallest little bird dies, that's a matter of my will. I know every hair on your head. I know every single thing about you. And you are far more valuable to me than these birds that I'm intimately concerned about. And so when you think about that and you meditate on that, it's just like all the problems of this world, they kind of they just take their proper place. You know what I mean? If God's for us, you know, who could be against us? Now, I wonder if you believe that. You need to probably just remind yourself. If you're like me, you need to remind yourself of that over and over again. You know? until it sinks in. The sovereignty of God is healing to the worrisome soul. Now, number two of our message, two points, so they're kind of, you know, they're longer, you know, but there's only two. So number two, priorities of a genuine disciple, verse 32 and 33, confess, confess Christ unashamedly. Therefore, whoever, and so I want you to scan yourself as we go through this last section, because it's kind of like a checklist. It's like, here, here are the proper priorities a disciple should have. A, you know, you say, I want, a, I want a spiritual checkup. I want to go in and get a diagnosis. Just like you go in and you get your car hooked up to the computer, it tells you what's wrong with it. This is kind of a diagnosis. Do we have the right priorities? Verse 32 and 33, need to confess Christ unashamedly. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father in heaven. But he who denies me, I'll deny him. Now, that's heavy duty. Jesus is saying, look, if, if you're ashamed of me, if you deny me, I'm going to deny you. This is really tough for young people that are in school. You've got peer pressure around you. You've got people that make it seem like you're lame if you're a Christian, you know, like, and it's, believe me, it was like that when I grew up too. It's, it's always kind of been like that, you know, for the you know, last 60 years, you know. It's kind of been like that, 50, maybe 50 years in schools. But Jesus says, look, he goes, if you deny it, you know, there's, I, I almost want to like soften these words 
because I feel for you that are under the pressure, you know? I feel for you guys. Like, I understand what it's like to be peer pressured. I get it. It's not cool to be moral, you know? Now, when he says, therefore, who confesses me before men? Now, the word confess, it doesn't just mean that you verbally say, I'm a Christian. Confession has a lot more to do with that. Confession means the way you live. It means you also, you say, but it's also the way you live. Do you live like Christ? Do you um, keep his commands? Are you concerned with obeying him? That's what your confession is. It's your whole life. It's not just your words. It's your actions. It's everything. And so Jesus says, if you confess me, if you live it, not only do you say it, but if you live it, I'll confess you before my Father, right? He's not talking about salvation by works. He's just saying, look, if you truly have salvation, if you're truly saved, if you're truly my disciple, you'll live it. That, it's that simple. Now he says, but anybody that denies me. Now there's a lot of ways that people deny Jesus. Sometimes people deny him with their actions. They'll say I'm a Christian, but then they won't live like a Christian. There's people that deny him with their words. They'll just say, look, I just renounce him. I'm just done with Christ. Or, or else they'll say they're a Christian on Sunday, but then their language throughout the week is like, you're denying Christ by your language. You make filthy jokes. You're, you know, I mean, just stuff like that. I'm not trying to burn anybody. I'm just, I'm just saying there's just logic. If I say I'm a Christian, if I say I'm a disciple of Christ, I believe Jesus is Lord and I follow him. And there's and then also people deny Jesus by just silence. So those three ways, actions, words, and silence. Those are ways that you can deny Jesus. He says, if you do, I'll deny you before my Father. So priority one of a genuine disciple is they confess Christ unashamedly. And might I add this, around every group of friends. They don't get with certain family members or certain groups of friends and pretend like they're somebody different, right? And then, well, I come to church and I'm a different person in church. You know, I have really got the holy act down here. But when I want to go out on a Friday night and go get involved in nightlife and stuff like that, I don't even really mention Jesus to people. I just, you know, as, as far as they know. So you confess Christ unashamedly everywhere you are. That's priority one. Number two, willingly faces rejection if needed. Look at verse 34. Don't think I came to bring peace on earth. W wait a minute. It's Christmas. Peace on earth and mercy, my old God and sinners reconciled. I thought you came to bring peace on earth. Yeah, it's, have you read your Bible? When's it coming? When's peace on earth coming? Starts with an M. Millennium, right. What is that? It's a thousand year reign of Christ that will come after the great what? Tribulation, that's right. So there is a time of peace and prosperity coming and who's gonna be the ruler of the whole government of everything during that time? Jesus Christ, where's he going to rule from? Jerusalem. People have been reading their Bibles. This is good. There is a time of peace coming, but it's not yet. And that's what Jesus is saying. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Instead of peace on earth at Christmas, let's put sword on earth. <laughs> well, it's interesting. And, and here's the deal. He's not talking about a physical sword. Jesus is not advocating violence. Remember what he said to Peter when he chopped the guy's ear off, Malchus's ear? He said, don't do that. Put your sword away, Peter. If I, I have angels, take care of that. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> what are you going to do with your sword, you know? What Jesus is talking about is he's saying the sword of division. And look what he says there. I want you to read this. I don't think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not, but to bring a sword. 
For I have come to set a man against his father. It wasn't Jesus' agenda to set a man against his father. Oh, you got a good relationship with your dad? Oh, cool. I've come to set you against him. No, don't think that. It's the byproduct of what happens when within a family, somebody starts following Jesus Christ for real, and either the non-believers in the family or the carnal Christians in the family start having a problem with it. There are Christians in name only, carnal Christians, that if you become a real Christian, they're going to be mad at you. Why are you such a fanatic? I'm not a fanatic. I'm just doing the things that God says to do, right? The world today, and unfortunately so many people that name Christians, they, they give themselves the name Christians, they think that average, normal, everyday discipleship is fanaticism, right? You read the Bible all the time? Oh, you're a fanatic. You go to church like twice a week? What is wrong with you? Fanatic. It's not a fanatic. That's discipleship 101. I'm just doing the very basic things that Jesus, you know, I've just read my Bible, you know? So this priority here is to willingly face this rejection if needed. I have to understand that if I'm a Christian and my dad rejects me, and my dad says, look, you got to get out of my house if you're going to do this Christian stuff. Okay, I got to go. If my mother says to me, you know, same thing. Uh, look what it says there. Man against his father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. This means you've got to, boy... You know, this is challenging. The Bible does say in Romans, it says to, you know, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So you have to balance that here. God's called me to be at peace. Now, if I've got people that are hostile or indifferent or any otherwise towards Christianity and my family, okay, then I need to figure this out. I need to be at peace with them at all possible, but I need to do it without compromising my walk with the Lord. Right? Now, if you're a parent, you're under obligation of the Lord to bring your kids up. You know, you're to disciple and to train them, right? And so that can't be, you can't ignore that right? and be right with God. If you're ignoring that, you're not right with God. Right? I'm not trying to be hardcore, man. I, I'm just really not. I, I, I want to be a God-pleaser before I'm a man-pleaser. She's talking about family relationships here. brings us to our next priority. So the disciple willingly faces rejection, even if it comes within the family. I'm not talking about being obnoxious and getting rejected because you're obnoxious. Let me put that asterisk on it. I'm talking about if somebody just has a problem with Christianity and they're taking it out on you and it comes time to divide or compromise, uh, a dis true disciple willingly will face rejection if needed. Here's the third priority. Verses 37 through 39, sacrifices self-centered living for the cause of Christ. Verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Again, I want to soften these words, <laughs> you know, I really do. 
because I, I, I love you guys and this is hardcore and I know Jesus loved the people he said these things to. Jesus is a lot more hardcore than I want to be. Now, he's not saying to love your family any less because you've become a Christian. Not at all. You wouldn't be right with God if you were doing that. But what he is saying is you need to love him more. I'm not saying love your family any less. I'm saying love me more. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is to come first in all relationships. He's to come first in everything. Now, also, for you theology nerds, this is an implication of Jesus' deity because nobody but God alone demands this place in somebody's life. But God does demand this place in our life. But nobody but God demands this place in our life. There are sick, toxic relationships where they'll say, you can't love anybody more than you love me. Oh, well, look. Here, how about this for you single people? If you start dating somebody and they start seeming like you need to love them more than anything else, you need to say, look, you're codependent and I need to back up off of you. This is toxic. I need to love Jesus before I love you. You know what I mean? Uh, so, hey, that might be just the thing that you need to get out of a bad relationship right now. Say, so, well, Jesus says I got to be out, <laughs> you know, because you're trying to get me to love you more than I love him. And uh, no, he comes first. You might have toxic relationships in your family. Listen, here, Jesus comes first. That's it. Your walk with the Lord comes before your relationship with your kids, before the relationship with your spouse, this could go the same thing for kids. If your parents aren't walking with the Lord and you're walking with the Lord, same thing. Your relationship comes with Jesus, comes before anything else, right? Jesus is saying that's the proper place. Now, I want to make this note that it's where he says, love me, you know, more than, look at verse 37. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You can extend this, you know, to say he who loves anything more than me. Is not worth. It's called idolatry. Idolatry is when we place anything before our relationship with Jesus Christ. And might I say this? The bad things are not typically the things that divide our loyalty from Jesus Christ. It's typically the good things, like family, um, parenting, work. I mean, there's some that are obvious, right? I shouldn't let my relationship with, you know, the buffet... You know, I shouldn't let drugs come before my relationship. I shouldn't let my own comfort. I shouldn't let sex. I shouldn't let, you know, those things are obvious. But it's the things that are not so obvious, that the good things, those are the things that are tricky. And that's what Jesus is saying right here. Even something that's so important to you as your family, there needs to be a gap between the kind of love and devotion that you have to Jesus Christ, between the kind of love and devotion that you have to your family. That gap needs to be so pronounced. You need to love and serve your family exactly like the Bible says to do, to provide for them, to serve them as, a, as their servant. That's great. But your love and devotion to Jesus Christ has to come before. That comes down to if your family constantly influences you to ungodly living, you probably got to do something about that, you know? If you say, you know, every time I get around Uncle Tim 
we end up like in jail. <laughs> you know what I mean? You need to quit hanging out with that guy, man, because your relationship with the Lord comes first. If you say, every time I get on the phone with my cousin Sue, she's always gossiping about somebody else. And the next thing you know, I find myself gossiping. Maybe you need to draw some sort of boundary with you and Sue, right? It's not the bad things. It's the good things that tarnish, that we allow to tarnish our relationship and our loyalty to the Lord. Jesus gets right at it there. And he goes on and he says, if anyone and he who does not take his cross. Now here's the first mention of the word cross in the gospel of Matthew. And this would have been a very vivid picture. Sometimes Christians today, they wrestle with what does it mean to take your cross? Well, in this day and age, it was simple. See, the Romans took crucifixion from the Persians, right? Now, the Persians invented crucifixion, but the Romans mastered it. They turned it into the ultimate torture, worst thing that ever. And so what they would do is if you were a convicted criminal in Rome, you would go to court, you'd get convicted, and they would give you a part of the cross that you would carry through town. And what it would do is it would serve as like an ad campaign, right? Like they would parade this criminal through town so everybody knew that guy was going to the death penalty. So you'd carry your cross through town. You'd go to the place where they were going to crucify you. They'd string you up or they'd nail you up and, and uh, you'd die. Sometimes they even took on that piece that you carried and they put a little shelf on there, right? So the guy would sit there. Why would they do that? Anybody have a guess? Extend it. Extend the suffering. You're sitting there bleeding. You've got nails through your wrist, through your uh, ankles. Your feet are folded on and the nail goes straight through your ankle bone. And you're sitting there on a shelf in front of all these people walking by you for a week, a week at it, maybe, you know, maybe even more. Animals are coming and pecking at your skin. I mean, it's terrible, right? And so when Jesus said, if you don't take your cross, you know, you're not worthy of me. They knew what taking the cross meant. It means doing your obligation to Christ, following Jesus Christ, even if it brings death. That's what it means. It means my relationship with Jesus Christ has to, look at what he says. This is so intense, man. Verse 36, or 38, sorry. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He doesn't say he who doesn't take his cross and follow me can just sit in the back. He doesn't say that. He says, don't even think of yourself as a Christian. That's heavy duty, man. That's probably one of the heaviest statements of Jesus in the whole Bible. You kids back there that got Sunday school Jesus, you know, you try to keep it like, you know, PG, you know, when you're in Sunday school, but then you come out to this adult room and you start to hear these statements that Jesus made and you go, what the heck? Jesus says that I need to put him first, even to the point of death. Well, that's what he's saying in our passage here today. He comes first. Loyalty to him comes first. That's in so intense to me. Christianity isn't this American thing that we've been told that it is. You know? It's not about goldfish crackers and youth group. You know what I mean? That's, that's, it's something else altogether. It's a war between light and dark. It's a spiritual battle between evil and good. 
You're either part of it or you're not. You're, I mean, if you're on one side of it or another. Jesus says in a later verse, he says, he who gathers with me gathers. If you scatter, he says, he who's not with me is against me. If you're sitting in here today and you're not with him, you're against him. That's crazy. This is a call to give up everything and to stop at nothing when it comes to following Jesus, even if it results in death and torture. That is so intense. I have to tell you, when I started being a pastor 10 years ago, uh, you know, I used to just breeze by things like this and say, oh, Jesus is hardcore stuff. And it's like, as I, the longer I go on, the more seriously I take the scripture, I just, I'm, I'm blown away at Jesus. I'm blown away by his call to discipleship, what it truly means to feel him. I am just blown away by it. I'm so challenged by it. I have to, when I scan myself, I have to say, I don't even know. I'm an Americanized, comfort zone seeking, you know, I don't, I don't even know. God help me, you know. Then he says something that you could probably spend the rest of your life pondering. Verse 39. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a paradox. The kingdom of God's a backwards place. Up is down. Down is up. Jesus says, if anybody wants to be great in the kingdom of God, let him be the servant of all. Wait a minute. So if I want to be great up, I need to go low and be the servant. Jesus says, you want to find meaningful life? You want to find real life? You want to find eternal life, something that you can be joyful about, content, happy, truly happy about? You want to find abundant life? It comes by stop living. You have to stop living for self-centered priorities. That's what he's saying. Give up your passions, your hopes, your ambitions, your dreams, your plans. Give up all that stuff and just make me your top ambition. That's what Jesus is saying, right? Be willing just to take it all and to say, oh, you can have it all, Jesus, Right? Some of you are really struggling. You're saying, uh, you know, I don't have the abundant life that the Bible talks about. I don't have the joy that other Christians have. I, I'm not content. I don't feel like my life's full of purpose and meaning. I'm depressed. I'm hopeless. It's probably because you're living for yourself. It's most likely because you're wrapped up in self. That's it. Jesus is trying to set you free. He's saying, look, you want to be free from that? You want to be free from the tyranny of self? Take this blessing and pick up this other life. Pick up this cross life. Pick up the life of a disciple. You'll find joy and contentment. That's not even what it's about. That's a byproduct of it is the joy and the contentment and the peace and the happiness. That's just a byproduct. That's thrown in with eternal life, with life eternal, with heaven, with praising God for eternity, blessing God for eternity, being able to see the only one that's worthy of praise, the one I want to spend my time with, the one that loves my soul, the one that cares for me, the one that knows everything about me and yet loves me unconditionally would die for me. You're empty today, it's because you're living for self. That's it. Jesus makes it so simple. He says these profound things. They're so simple, but you could spend the rest of your life meditating on them and like... Priority three of the disciple, he sacrifices, she sacrifices self-centered living for the cause of Christ. 
Priority four, verses 40 through 42, lives for the blessing of being united with Christ and receiving the rewards he will give. Verse 40, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives he who sent me. This is such a cool thing, right? (laughs) If I bring the gospel of Jesus to Christ to somebody and they receive that and they receive me, Jesus is saying it's just like they're receiving me. You're that connected with me. And guess what? They're also receiving the heavenly father that sent Jesus. I mean, you have the coolest thing to be involved in. You know, we have the coolest thing to be involved in. Um, If somebody receives us, the message, the gospel message, they're receiving Christ. We're in this process with him. He's that close with us. That's a great thing to have as a priority in your life. This is a priority. This is what I find my joy in. Some people find joy in the fact that their, you know, their you know, new episode came out on Netflix and we just can't wait and let's have a party about it. And it's like, that's great. But are you that excited about the fact that you're intimately connected with Jesus Christ? Are you that excited about that? What's the most exciting thing to you in the world? tell you what it's going to be in eternity. He says, verse 41, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. Um, When you're out sharing the message, you know, with people, you know, you're a disciple of Christ, you're sharing the message. People give you hospitality. They help you. God's going to reward that. Um, if you do that, you're giving to ministries, you're, you're helping the kingdom of God, you're doing all these different things, God's going to do that. Like, essentially, you're sharing in the same sort of reward as the person themselves that's out ministering. Uh, some of you might be kind of down on yourself. You say, oh, I wish I could get more involved, but I work 50 hours a week, and all I really do in the church is give. You know, I, I just show up there and I give money. Listen, you're getting involved in the mission by giving money, and you're going to get the same sort of reward as the whole ministry's involved with. As far as God's concerned, that's a good blessing. And so don't, don't play yourself down because that's all you do in a church. That's a huge part of the ministry. He goes on and says, verse 42, Anyone who gives a little one, of these, uh, one of these little ones a cold cup of water, a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, surely I say he shall by no means lose his reward. Looking out for needy <coughs> believers, the little ones, it's a word for believers, but it's, you know, the, the ones that are struggling, the hard, the, the, the you know, not down and out, the, uh, just the small guy, the small gal. You're looking out for them, and the cup of cold water is just, it's just any act of just kindness that you do. God notices it, and he'll reward you for it. So those are the property, you know, priorities of a genuine disciple in times of persecution. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word here today. We pray, Father, um, that you'd wake us up. Um, I pray that for myself. I don't know. I, I just pray it for myself, God. This is convicting and challenging to me. And um, Lord, I want to honor you and please you in all that I do. And so I just, I pray f- for your help in that. I pray for anybody here, Lord, that is really just str- struggling to uh, find that abundant life, Lord, that maybe today would be just a great reminder that if we'll lose our life, if we'll choose by our will to give up on that self-centered way of living, that then we'll, through this weird paradox, that we'll truly find what is meaningful. 
God, I know that you know the needs of every person in this room from the front to the back, every chair here, every hair on every head's numbered. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would have your will and your way in the lives of each person here. In Jesus' name, amen.